Welcome back to the exit ramp from Pod Wheels, powered by Radio Nemo. Hello again, everybody. I'm Greg Thompson. And as you guys know from our previous episodes in this podcast series, the exit ramp is designed to take us to interesting places through great conversations. And this edition of our podcast should be a lot of fun for everybody. Did you guys know that May 27th marked the 45th anniversary of the movie debut of Smokey and the Bandit? Well, Jimmy Mack, the host of Dave Nemo Weekends, your Weekend 34, had this anniversary date circled on his calendar. And as you guys can hear in the background, Jimmy, with a little help from Jerry Reed, is ready to lead us eastbound and down for our initial departure point on this edition of The Exit Ramp. Now, folks, Jimmy asked me to come alongside for our run today, and here's the best part. Jimmy and I will be joined on the exit ramp today by Long Haul Paul, who, as you guys know, is a frequent caller and a friend to the Radio Nemo family of shows. Many of our listeners also know that Long Haul Paul is a veteran professional driver, an accomplished musician, and a contributing writer for Overdrive. Long Haul Paul's many talents also extend to podcasting. You can hear Paul as the storyteller for the highly acclaimed Over the Road podcast series. Now, folks, it's time for us to go eastbound and down for our latest conversation on the exit ramp on Pod Wheels, powered by Radio Nemo. One of the things about the exit ramp that I really enjoy is a chance to kind of get more expletive and more into the weeds about certain things. I did make a point on Friday's show and on Saturday's show of really kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive into Smokey and the Bandit. It's 45 years of Smokey and the Bandit, and every five years, every fifth year anniversary... 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, and all the way up. What they do is they actually leave Texarkana and they do the actual route of the run. They go from Texarkana to Atlanta. And what they do on that run is they take the Bonnevilles and the Trans Ams and they make the run in its entirety. And I was thinking about that because the film is so improvisational. And I was talking to some other guests on the show today about this, that as long as you have a road with destinations, that there really isn't as much improvisation as you think. You're making up the character interactions as you go along, but you don't have to make up the story because the story is the next stop. And I'm wondering in regards to why the film actually ends up being the second biggest moneymaker of 1977 after that other great trucking movie star wars i always kind of oh you are my theory on that guys i think that the two greatest science fiction movies about trucking are actually either alien which is full of a bunch of disgruntled truckers who all want their share and don't want to stop to pick up something kind of awful and the other one is star wars where a religious crackpot a smuggler and a wet behind the ears kid pick up a bratty princess and have to outrun the law and I think those are like the two greatest science fiction movies ever in regards to trucking. But I'm wondering if the reason why so many truckers are such great storytellers, but why they also like songs and movies and books so much, is that their whole lives are governed by the principle of actually having to move along a storyline. And I'm wondering if so much of their imaginations and the way they see things is in a movement of point A to point B. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. I just want to know what you guys think of that. Well, that's such a great point. I did an interview with a wonderful writer by the name of Michael Perry, New York Times bestselling author. His big one is Population 485, but he's also an accomplished songwriter. And he's sort of like the Bob Wills of Wisconsin. Remember that Waylon Jennings song, Deep in the Heart of Texas, Bob Wills is still the king. Well, Michael Perry sells out large venues in Wisconsin, but he's got this one song called How Many Miles, which is a wonderful trucking song. And the punchline is, motion is your morphine. 
I think motion is the great American sacrament. It's the muse. It's an artistic muse for me personally, but it's also interchangeable with freedom in the American psyche. And so these films that you mentioned, they capture, even though we're watching them in a sedentary state, the vicarious thrill of the motion, especially remember that scene in Star Wars when those stars keep coming at you faster and faster. I mean, it just took my breath away. So I think when you're a trucker, and especially when you're in that legendary mythical space, that smoky and abandoned inhabited, you're like a high priest of that morphine, I believe. That's really kind of a great point that I want to bring up because there's two funny stories that connect to that. The first of which is is that one of the reasons why I think people relate to Star Wars so much and Smokey and the Bandit and Convoy and Easy Rider is that repair is part of the story as well. When you deal with whether it's a crankshaft that has a problem, whether your engine is overheated, one of the great things about Star Wars that has such a commonality with both Easy Rider, Convoy, and Smokey and the Bandit is that unlike in a Star Trek universe where everything works perfect, everyone once in a while they need some dilithium crystal but everything's going to be fine in star wars they literally spend half the movie trying to figure out a way to make the ship jump to light speed it happens a lot too in empire strikes back and that a lot of star wars is spent trying to fix things i mean the whole thing begins with trying to find a bunch of droids that'll help them actually make their farm work they have to repair the land speed or they have to repair the millennium falcon but the payoff after all that work on the engine and trying to get things right when they're finally able to do the thing you talked about paul to be able to hit the switch and make that jump to light speed with that great blizzard and i'm using that word on purpose that great blizzard of stars that then comes racing at them i think a lot of truckers have that feeling especially in the 70s and 80s when you're working on your own truck and so much of its maintenance really comes down to your sort of ability to hustle as an owner operator that there is a sense of reward when you really are able to quote unquote hammer down and you know your ability to hit that speed has occurred because you're the one that did it i'd love your thoughts on this paul that not only are you driving down the road and making good time, but you're making good time because you made the time to work on the truck to get it to a place where it could do that. Greg, you've been very generous. What do you think? When I look at Smokey and the Bandit, and by the way, guys, for homework, because I knew this was coming up, last night I watched Smokey and the Bandit for the first time in like 40 years. So (laughs) now I've got the perspective of, there's a few things... First of all, it was one of those classic Hal Needham movies. He was a stunt coordinator, then he becomes a director. When you think about it, Sally Field won the Academy Award two years later for Norma Rae. And here she is riding around with her boyfriend in a wedding dress in a Trans Am. But the thing I like about both these, when you talk about Star Wars and you talk about Smoking the Bandit, it's motion. You're going somewhere. I mean, and that's the point that Paul made, I think, so well. And the idea that's also inside of that kind of really regulated run, even though the run for the Coors beer in Smokey and the Bandit is an unregulated or an unapproved run, that it actually really is smuggling. I think that the thing about it is that because the route is so fixed, it leaves a lot of room for improvisation. Talked about this on the show, the idea that almost half the dialogue, if not all of the dialogue, is actually improv. Where are we going? No, don't tell me. Let me guess. We are a bride in search of a wedding. No. No? There, there is a wedding in search of a bride. Let me put it another way. Think of it as a wedding posse in search of a bride. Do you understand that, cowboy? Yeah. What are you doing? These are my shoes. Oh, yeah. And these are my legs. Yeah. 
What are you going to do with it? With the shoes or the legs? Last time I saw legs like that, they had a message tied to them. What do you mean? These are great little legs. I'm a professional. Well, in that case, you shouldn't be dressed in white. Dancer. Oh. Oh, cowboys love fat calves. They're not fat. No bigger than mine. Do we really want to talk about legs? Well, one of us does. Otherwise, we're just smart ass. What are we doing now? Well, I am getting my clothes, you fool. That's a good idea. Why don't you slip into something comfortable? Are we really going 110? Uh -huh. We're going 110. Why do you wear that cowboy hat? I know, because you think it looks dazzling on you. Ooh. He's pounded down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm East Pound, just watch no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal. Some never mind them breaks. Let it all hang out, cause we gotta run to make. The boys are thirsty in Atlanta, and there's beer in Texarkana. And we'll bring it back no matter what it takes. The other thing is, and I wanted to kind of throw this at Paul. I think it's a really cool thing that Jerry Reed was actually asked to write a song for the movie. And he kept putting it off and putting it off because, hey, it was Jerry Reed and it was the 70s. Everybody put everything off. It kind of goes back to Elliot Gould's great line from The Long Goodbye, which is, it's okay by me. Just kind of keep on moving. But he put it off long enough. So he writes a song after a long night of partying. He then sits down with Needham. He plays eastbound and down. And very, very nervously, he says at the end, if you don't like it, I can throw it out and come up with something else. Needham wow. looks at him and he says, if you do that, I'll kill you. It's a great <laughs> moment. And I'm wondering, Paul, because basically they've been in those Trans Ams and in that 18-wheeler and basically gone all over the place. I'm wondering if you have any kind of similar experiences in all your kind of long catalog of writing these songs, of literally getting to the end of the line or getting to a stop and being like, I got to just write this and I'm not going to think much about it. And then it ends up being something great. Is that an experience you can relate to? Well, there have been songs I've been uncertain about. A lot of times the songs that frighten me the most when they're completed do the best. I wrote a song called 30 Way Coffee, which was based on a long series of conversations with a cattle hauler who I was training. And when I got it done, I loved it, but I feared the public censure it might bring. And that's been our biggest song. We've even got 30-way coffee travel mugs that are going pretty well. The fact that Jerry Reed was uncertain about that song, and that's just how the creative mind works. That's crazy because you listen to that song by Reed and it is just, forget about whether you like the song or not. It's kind of perfect. Absolutely. It's a perfect song and I'm kind of a music snob. I like a little bit of everything, but there's nothing he could have done to make that song better. It does the impossible. Not only is it a song that stands on its own, but it's a song that instantly makes you think of the movie. And it's a song that actually contains the plot of the movie without feeling like it only can apply to the movie. So it's kind of amazing. And you brought up a really good point I made at the end of yesterday's show, Saturday's show, the idea that people don't realize this. So Bob Seger writes against the wind and he's get this dazzling line where he says, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. 
and he doesn't know if the line works. And he has to go to Don Henley, and he has to go to Glenn Fry, and they basically tell him the same thing that Needham tells Reed, which is, if you change that lyric, I'll kill you. <laughs> there is something kind of remarkable about that. And I've had these moments, too, where you're like, I'm not sure if that works. I think about NXS cutting songs yeah. in the last minute to kind of fill out an album and it being the hit song. Do you feel like that the road, and we always kind of look <laughs> for topic here, and I feel like we've now stumbled upon it. What do you both think about the road as the idea of being on the road, not thinking about the road, but hmm. being on the road as a place for artistic inspiration where you can actually create as you move? And I guess we'll start with Paul on that and then right. go to Greg. Yes, no doubt. The road is the muse. I had a really fruitful period as a songwriter when I was in a 2007 386 Peterbilt. It had a Caterpillar motor. It was before they went to super singles. And the sound of 18 wheels, 18 wheels makes a tenor sound, which I think is closer in pitch to my actual voice. When they went to super singles, super singles make a bass sound. And I'm in a very quiet freight liner with a Detroit motor. Nothing wrong with the truck. But I don't have that humming of the asphalt. I don't have those steel wheels humming on the asphalt, as Steve Earle once wrote about. I think it slowed me down a little, just to be honest. I think there's something about just the sonic experience of going down the road in an 18-wheeler that inspires you because you're riffing off of the sound of the truck as you write. I can't really write unless I'm moving. Now that I'm semi-retired, I can write for Overdrive magazine when I'm sitting down, but I can't compose songs unless I'm moving. That's interesting. So if you're moving, I think about some of the great songwriters, and you mentioned Don Henley. Those guys learned how to write songs by living underneath Jackson Brown, and they heard him do Doctor My Eyes for months, and he would come up with lines. So if you're moving, and I'll add to this, so I've written one song, which was a parody song. And I have a friend of mine who's a great songwriter. He wrote for Johnny Lang for a number of years. His name is Bruce McCabe. Brilliant songwriter, was in his own band, and actually did three dates with the Rolling Stones. But anyway, one of the wow. things Bruce and I would talk about is you see something and it's nothing to most people, but it's everything. And I only do that when I'm moving, when I see something. So let's get back to you, Paul. You say you write songs when you're moving. How are you able to do that? What's your process? Do you have a recorder or... Because I know the Beatles were like, they'd write and they go, we need to write this stuff down because we can remember it. But if you're moving, it's kind of hard to write it down. Well, I'll make up a little song in my head. This has been the process. If it's a good song, I'll remember it the next morning when I first wake up. I get up. If everything's clicking right, I'll get up around five and make some coffee. And if I remember that song again, I'll keep working on it. If it wasn't good enough, it flies by. Now, this is a horrible thing. I never write my songs down until it's time to copyright them. And I've got so many songs in my head that I probably need to be more deliberate and write them down because I'm starting to forget a few of them. I went to a parochial school and we didn't have spectrums when we were kids. Now everyone's on the spectrum. We just had Sister Mary Elizabeth who straightened us out. You were either a good boy or a bad boy. I'm not trying to diminish or demean anybody. They've come a long way and people have gotten real help by identifying those problems. But I was always sort 
sort of an absent-minded kid growing up, but I loved literature. I was very fortunate to have a dad. My dad would sit down in one of those big leather chairs that would look like Catcher Smith. I can actually I, see it, man. That's cool. I'm going to make you laugh really quickly, Paul, because I want to get back to those chairs. My dad had one of those chairs. We also had one of those record players. My father wouldn't buy a lot of music. He didn't mind us buying music. He wouldn't buy music. Anytime a famous writer that he liked would cut a record reading their books, he would go out and immediately get it. And he actually got J.R.R. Tolkien reads The Lord of the Rings. It's such a 60s and 70s thing to kind of actually have the big chair and discuss literature. And I remember all those albums coming out, Stories to Tell in the Dark, Edgar Allan Poe, with a Wrinkle in Time record, and all of that. But that chair, I know exactly the chair you're talking about, where you feel like if you squint your eyes, you can see the pitcher on the mound winding up to throw you the ball. <laughs> I remember now, it was an Ames lounge chair. It was designed by this eccentric guy named Ames. And apparently they made a resurgence after they were featured in Mad Men. I've never had a chance <laughs> to see Mad Men, but he would sit in his chair and read me Studs Turkle and read me Robert's Service. So I had a love of words, but I was a very distracted and absent-minded student. By the way, if he's reading you Studs Terkel and Robert Service, I mean, when do you join the picket line? I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, I, I, so many of the people I really love in music are really radical. And if I had to agree with their politics, I would have very few songs saved on Spotify. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I mean, there are people who don't realize it's like Pete Seeger isn't a liberal. Pete Seeger's to the left Stalin. I mean, <laughs> it's really weird, too, because you ever remember that moment when Glenn Beck actually figured out what the song This Land is Your Land is actually about? <laughs> no, I have not seen that. <laughs> when he finally figured out that being bound for glory wasn't exactly what he thought it meant. And it's this kind of moment of like watching somebody realize that their hero is like literally right out of share the wealth, share the land, march the capitalist to the sea. This other thing, too, is the fact that one of the things about the road that's so cool is that you meet this vast, diverse group of people. We've reached a point in our country right now where if you don't agree with me, well, not only are you like in disagreement with me, but you are an enemy of the Republic. Speaking of the Republic from Star Wars, but you're an enemy of the Republic. And I'm just wondering if being on the road in many ways, if you open yourself up to it, does it open you up not only to artistic temperament, but does it open you up to the possibilities of other ways of thinking? And I sometimes worry that's being lost. I'd love to get either one of y'all's mm -hmm. thoughts on that too. Well, I think you make a good point, Jimmy. There's a New York writer whose name I cannot conjure at the moment. He talks about the process of asocialization. It's not so much being antisocial, but he observed the way New Yorkers walk and interact, and they're staring at their phones as they walk through the street. So the life on the street in New York City, we have these people cocooned in their own little worlds, speaking to the people they choose to speak of. So we are becoming in siloed, in a sense, in a very real sense. And the more we become lost in our own imaginary world with people, it does cause concern. Now, when you're actually interacting with people, this is what's really interesting. This doesn't really happen in real life on the road. You don't, you very seldom hear people raise things that they would raise on social media in person. But I'm really concerned about this trend. You mentioned Pete Seeger. There's a wonderful interview I just recently listened to by Pete Seeger. He said, if I was hired to go do a concert by the John Birch Society, I would gladly go. In other words, Pete Seeger was going to sing those songs to anyone who would listen. Recently, I was courting a drummer. He was a very talented drummer. I wanted him to come help us do a truck show. And he said, he just doesn't want to be around a bunch of right-wing white supremacists. Where did he get that view? That view didn't come from nowhere. That's the problem. 
I don't know how to repair that, but how I repaired it, I'm just doing this show without a drummer. There is a great, and you can actually look it up on video. It's kind of remarkable. It's Ted Kennedy talking to the moral majority. Have you ever seen that speech? No, I no, I'd love to see it. So he was accidentally included on a mailing list where they reached out and sent him a membership card. He then reached out to Jerry Farwell and said, well, hey, since you offered me membership, I would love to come and speak to your members. And Farwell actually invites him and he goes and he speaks to the moral majority. And I had a conversation with a friend the other night and just adore her. And she's actually a person who is incredibly open. And she and I weren't having a debate. What we were talking about is what is the threshold of pain? Because there are a lot of people that believe in a certain level where if you're not with me on everything, I don't want to talk about your problematic areas. But she and I were kind of having this remarkable conversation, like where are the points where you actually have an obligation to listen? I don't know if you heard it a couple of days ago, Colton Lawrence was on the show and he made a really good point and a very generous one too about listening and going home about not just listening and then letting somebody say their opinion and then waiting to offer yours back in return, but actually sitting down with somebody whom you disagree with and saying, I'm not going to have a rebuttal. I'm not going to be on CNN's crossfire. I'm not actually going to shut you down or shout you down. I'm just going to listen and go home. And I feel like the whole thing about that great story about play for the John Birch Society, kind of love that because the idea that it's like, I will go there. Will I be allowed to speak what I want to speak when I'm done? And if I'm allowed to say that, even if I only peel two people away from you or maybe warm the hearts of people here a little bit, maybe they'll humanize me. And I feel like the silo point you make, the idea of putting ourselves in the silos, it is actually inviting those who don't like us to dislike us more. And that's fine. But it's inviting them to dehumanize us. We're actually asking people we disagree with to dehumanize us. We're inviting that upon ourselves by not engaging with these people. It makes it very, very easy so let's kind of make a case about gay marriage here. You ready? All right. Sure. Gay marriage passes, and its journey is a long one. You could make the case, agree with it or not, guys, that they knock on doors. Rather than telling people, shame on you for not supporting this, you're a bigot. What these men, men in particular on this movement, do is they knock on their neighbor's door. And for the sake of comedy, I'll do this the way it would be. Well, hey, Bob, how are you? And how's your, how's your boyfriend? He's good. What can I do for you? Do you like us? Oh, we love you. I mean, you like the way I do your wife's hair, right? Oh, it's fantastic. And you love all the architecture that my boyfriend has actually made happen. All of this. Oh, it's fantastic. We think you're the best. Will you help us? We just want to have the same rights you have. We want to have protections. We want to be able to visit each other if we get sick. We want to be able to share in common property. Can you help us? We want to be able to celebrate with our friends and family who accept us. Will you help us? And I think so many Americans went, of course, I'll help you. We love Bob. We love Bob's buildings. We love the way you do my wife's hair. And let's kind of move forward. And I think the only way we move forward is really we're getting Christian here. But the idea of turning the other cheek isn't just the strategy of masochism. But the idea is that you offer the other cheek, you let it be struck, and you turn back in warmth and love and say, okay, now that you've gotten your rage out of your system, would you please accept me as human beings and we can move forward together? And I don't just mean that as like bringing up the gay marriage example is like right-wing stuff. Colton and I had a remarkable conversation because I brought up The Way of the Hawk, this wonderful book Mm -hmm. this woman wrote, about the fact that this vegan, and the point that she makes is the fact that she found more faith here than all of Israel in regards to conservation. Because the point I made yesterday is, who do you want on your side? (laughs) The guy who actually plays by the rules and gets the elk hunting license and therefore has an investment in preserving the elk population Mm -hmm. for generations to move forward and helps control the population and prevents land developers from coming in there, or 
the asshole who actually yeah. is all in favor of human rights and against mm -hmm. hunting, but at the same time has no problem building a McMansion in the right. middle of the Idaho or Utah wilderness that right. basically disrupts the ecosystem. Right. And and her epiphany there of her like meeting people, conservationists, there are hunters who are immense conservationists, and there is room there to maneuver. And I just feel like the silo thing you just talked about. But here's something else, too. It gets back to the point. I just feel like we know plenty of people. They call in the show. People send me drawings they've made. They send me song lyrics they've written. we got a guy who calls with his haikus all the time. But I feel like when you silo yourself, you don't open yourself up to the prospect of creating art because art is about empathy and the ability to see other people's points of view. And what you end up with is some kind of Soviet-style social realism or some sort of what I call woke checklist of like make sure you hit all the right issues and make sure you get the snaps instead of applause or make sure that we reduce the whole world to a bunch of fart jokes and get her done for the other side. And I feel like without that empathy, people can't write songs, they can't write books, they can't do any of the stuff that makes life worth living. That's my high horse. And one of the things that I'll share with you, and it goes back to the conversation that you and Colton had on Friday, is that I think we've lost the art of listening. There's a lot of folks out there that have embraced Leonard Skinner over the years, and that's wonderful. If you polled the folks that go to those shows, there's going to be a lot that are going to lean to a very conservative side. But if folks actually took the time and listened to the content of the song, like things going on, rarely play that live, but Saturday Night Special is one yeah. that plays a lot. And if you yeah. listen, and if you listen to that song, and everybody cheers, they're like, "Man, that's great!" But are you listening to the content of it? Ronnie Van Zant, who rode in the cab of his dad's truck, as Lacey Van Zant was a trucker. That's what he did until his son got famous. He rode in there for years, and that's where he came up with the songs. That's where he observed the people. <clears throat> that was a major place for him creatively. It just goes to the fact that we need to not to stand on one side of the fence or the other, but we all need to listen to each other a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. Paul? Greg, to your point, music is this great medium of empathy. It can hack its way into people's beliefs. One of the best examples, the first paid article I ever did for Overdrive magazine was on Mary Gaucher's project called Songwriting with Soldiers. Mary Gaucher joined this group where they would have these retreats with returning veterans with PTSD. They would get their stories and convert them into songs. And she was nominated for a Grammy for that project. The album became Rifle and rosary beads. But what they did was very admirable. Mary Gaucher said to me, look, Paul, I'm a lesbian leftist. And most of these returning vets are far to the right. But we could find this beautiful common ground. So much of this change is relationally driven. It's not going to happen on a smartphone screen. You have to be flesh and blood in the room, just like your example of the florist and the hairdresser and the landscaper. Because you see issues of change and reform through the lens of relationships. That's why this summer I'm trying to play every show for every person that asks me to come play. Because I want to get to meet people. You're in this business, Jimmy Mack, and there's a very dialogic aspect to what you do. And that's what these small concerts are to me. I don't want to just come and play and leave. I want to be part of this group. So tomorrow... We're going to a large barbecue that have been hired to play. And these were people that were with me from the beginning. They funded our Muscle Shoals recording time. This guy owns a tire shop in East Central Indiana. 
they're just people that helped us. And you don't ever want to forget your local people. So that's kind of where we are on that. Oh, by the way, speaking of Muscle Shoals, Leonard Skinner, uh, let's have a nice little connection there. Before I forget to mention this, just want to go on the record and say my favorite Leonard Skinner song is Tuesday's Gone. It's just one of the most epic, heartbreaking. It captures something about the end of the day and feeling like that things have gotten away from you. That feeling of what I call hour 12 of the hangover, when it's finally faded out, when you finally yes. begin to feel like the nausea and the headache going away, but you also realize that you've just lost time and all that kind of stuff. And I want to say something about Tuesday's Gone. It is my favorite Skinnerd song as well, for a couple of reasons. I had a really good friend of mine, kind of grew up together and we're hanging out together. His name was Steve Chun. And we worked at Denny's together overnight. And you really get to know somebody when you work at a Denny's overnight. So I was with him one day and he had just turned 23 and he says, hey, I just got some life insurance. And we were just kind of kidding around. He's like, if I go before you do, play Tuesday's Gone at my funeral. I go, okay. <laughs> Here's the thing what happened, guys. Three weeks after that conversation, he died up in the Boundary Waters. And when I went to the service, his parents were devastated, obviously. Family was devastated. And they'd already planned stuff out. Even though I was 20 at the time or 21, I just didn't feel like I could say, hey, let's play this song. So it just kind of haunted yeah. me for many years. So I went to the 40th anniversary at the Fox Theater in Atlanta where they did the thing like they did with Greg Allman, where Don was put all these musicians together and they basically did a night and you had Charlie Daniels and you had Greg Allman and you had Warren Haynes and they were all doing so Skinner songs. basically a whole bunch of people that have no understanding of loss or suffering. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you've got Greg Allman. And when I first heard about this show, I was like, I gotta go. Because I was a big Skinner fan. And there's a guy that you hear on Pod Wheels Powered by Radio Nemo every once in a while who come in and he does voice work for us. And you're going to hear more from him. His name is Al Nepp. And we did college radio together. And he's up in St. Cloud, Minnesota. I said, you gotta come down here. We're gonna go to Atlanta. The only reason I really wanted to go was because Greg Allman was gonna be there and I love Greg. And I knew if there's one Skinner song he was gonna play, it was Tuesday's Gone.
The reason I'm bringing it up this weekend, it's been five years. May 27th of 2017 is when Greg passed away. So he's been gone for five years. And Greg got up there and did Tuesdays Gone. And here I am, I'm in my 50s, and I'm crying like a baby because of that song, because of that pain, because I'm thinking of my friend Steve, and we're in the Fox Theater, and I'm seeing Greg Allman, and hearing the lyrics of Ronnie Van Zandt, who again, tying it back to trucking, rode in the sleeper cab of his dad's truck, making those runs like you've seen on Smokey and the Bandit. We're hearing this beautiful song, wonderful rendition, and the weekend he died, I actually wrote about it. Tuesday's Gone with the Midnight Rider. I think in many ways I owe any sort of building an audience for myself outside of Dave's immense reach due to Greg Allman. When I just started doing the show, Allman passed away. He had passed away on a Friday evening, which meant that on the Saturday show, I got to do his obits. We have to pick our obits carefully. Every single person that passes, I can't like give them space and time. But I think when it comes to truckers and being on the road and road dog, I think Greg Allman merits a, an obit. And I remember I said something along the lines, I wrote my own obit, and I said, the great poet of grief and redemption and loss and love, Greg Allman, ain't wasting time no more. He's exactly where he needs to be, Godspeed. And I remember I got so many phone calls after the kind of discussion of his passing of a number of people who actually called and said to me, I wasn't sure about you, but I got to tell you, I've been listening for a while. And now what you said about Greg Allman made all the difference. And I always thought to myself, if I have any career, it's actually going to be due to the guy that wrote Melissa. And it's so funny because with the Almonds and with Leonard Skinner and all, a number of other songs too, that there is something, and I'm going to put this back on Paul for a second here. There is something that really kind of runs through a lot of these songs that really kind of speak to truckers from the late 60s all through the early 80s that speak to not just loss, but the prospect of maybe getting back that which was lost. There is a streak of redemption that runs through it. And do you think that's due to the fact that the road always begins again? That even though you come to the end of it, there's a chance of starting again the next day and getting the engine rolling and putting behind you that which has been lost and maybe moving towards something new and a new beginning? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And there are so many similarities. And I love that Greg brought that up. I did not know that about Ronnie Van Zandt's bio, that his father, Lacey cool. Van Zandt, was a trucker. That's such a great story. But there is such an intersection in the lives of an itinerant musician and a trucker. It is the same grind, especially say you're an entry level musician and you're being managed and you're getting these 500 mile overnight tours and you're doing your own roadie work. It's really grueling work. I was blessed and fortunate to co-write a song with Mary Gaucher and Darden Smith called Truckers and Troubadours, which explores the similarity of those lives. And it's going to be on our next album, which is really a kind of a big deal for us. I don't know. It might have been of a mercy collab in the midst of the pandemic. She wanted to give a nod to a trucker and do a co-write similar to what they were doing with songwriting with soldiers. But I'm still very proud to have been a part of that song. Truckers and troubadours Black coffee and metaphors Steering wheels, laying out and songs Wake up in the morning, we're gone On the stage, on the road 
Pack a long pole alone Thousands of miles left to do Always just passing through Paul, thanks so much for allowing us to share a little taste of truckers and troubadours with our audience. And if I could, in our closing moments, I'd like to turn this back to a bit of an almonds discussion. Greg came up with that line in Midnight Rider and the road goes on forever. That is one of those things that resonates, I think, across the trucking industry because the road does go on forever. Oh, yeah. It's a popular CB handle, Midnight Rider. (laughs) I tell you what. Why don't we put a pin in this conversation? All right. Come back next week. Maybe we'll bring in a fourth party. We'll bring us all back here. See if we can get maybe a female perspective on the same topic as well, with the three of us going as well. Right. And we will find another place to uh, take our 34 and find an exit ramp. What do you say, guys? Sounds great. Thanks for spending part of your day with us on The Exit Ramp, a podcast from Podwheels powered by Radio Nemo. Before we close out this edition of the podcast, we would like to invite you to stay connected with the latest from Podwheels powered by Radio Nemo by downloading our smartphone app. You can start using the Podwheels app by accessing the download menu option on our podwheels.net website or by searching Podwheels in the Apple Store or on Google Play. Finally, folks, be sure to check back with us right here for the latest episode of The Exit Ramp from Podwheels, powered by Radio Nemo.